If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. I have a confession to make to you. Okay? In 35 years of preaching ministry, I have preached through the book of Romans. This is my fifth time preached or taught through the book of Romans. Once here in the past. In all of those times, I have made a giant leap over Romans 9, 10, and 11. I have come to the end of 8 and jumped to 12. And uh, the reason is a very logical reason. Paul always lays a doctrinal foundation for what he's teaching. He always lays the truth down. And then having stated the case, he goes into the application. This is what this looks like in your life. And if you come to the end of chapter 8, where Paul concludes on that great pinnacle, saying, what can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, which is his grand summation of the message of the gospel, the whole story of salvation. And you jump over to chapter 12, you begin with these words, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves unto God a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's right where you pick up at the end of chapter 8. As, God, as Paul through, uh, God through Paul begins to explain to us, here's what this great salvation looks like in your life, in the body, in the church, in, in the community, in the family. And This is what it looks like. Chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 explain the practical application of the message of the gospel. So it's an easy move to go from 8 to, to 12. The other reason I've skipped it is 9, 10, and 11 are really tough. <laughs> They're really tough. I've spent all week working on this sermon. I spent last night working on this sermon you don't have a study guide this morning, because I didn't have it ready by Friday. I didn't have it ready last night. I stayed up till after midnight. I got up again this morning, came here to my office, still working on this message. This is tough stuff. And I realized, this is why, Martin, you're supposed to skip these chapters <laughs> and not deal with them, because they're so challenging. Because we get into all of that wonderful material about predestination and election and God will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy and wrath upon whom he'll have wrath. And, and we get into all of those passages that really, you know, boggle the mind and stretch the imagination and cause theological fights and all those kinds of things, you know. And I, it's just easier to go buy it. But I've got to tell you, we've got to go here. Uh, you're welcome, <laughs> I think. We've got to go here. And the reason we do is because this, these chapters, besides telling us about Israel, tell us about the character of God. There are many insights into the character of God in these chapters. And here's why this is important, friends. If you do not have a proper perspective of the God you worship and serve, first of all, you're serving an idol, but besides that, you're not going to relate well to him. It's hard to love and serve and follow someone that you do not know very well. 
It's also hard to love and serve and follow someone that you do not trust because you do not understand him. And I'm not suggesting for a heartbeat that you can fully understand God, but if you don't know anything about what he's like, he can be very scary. And many, many Christians have a relationship with God that quite honestly is based on anxiety and fear. They hope they don't want to go to hell. They've got that much figured out. That's pretty simple. They don't want to go to hell. <clears throat> they want to somehow get on God's right side. They heard the gospel message. They've trusted Jesus. They've asked him to forgive their sins. But now they're in a relationship with this God they don't understand. And as they move along, it's like, did this happen? Is God, is God punishing me? Is God disciplining me? Is God, what's God doing? I mean, I, can I get God to do this? Why won't God do that? I don't understand what's going on here. What's, I, help me out. And, and so many Christians live their whole Christian life not comprehending this God that they're in relationship with. And they live that Christian life in anxiety. And when they kind of come to the end, they're just hoping they can skate by and make it into heaven and forget this mess on the earth because it's too confusing. There's a famous line in C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia talking about Aslan. And Aslan is, is, is the lion that is the, the prototype of Christ in that book. And someone says, uh, is he safe? And the answer that's given is, he is good. But no, he is not safe. You know, and, and sometimes we have that feeling. God is good, we think, but he's scary. And if you don't understand his character, if you can't go down to the, to the foundation of what the Bible says about the character of God and come to grips with his character, then you're going to walk with him tenuously in anxiety and fear. Your prayer life is going to be uh, hit and miss. Your, your walk with God is going to be confused. And if you have a lot of turmoil in your life and sadness, then not only will you be struggling with anxiety and fear, but if you're honest, you're going to be dealing with anger too. Anger toward God. Why are you doing these things to me? How many people ask that question? And so these answers <laughs> are, are unfolded for us, at least the, the problem is unfolded for us, in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And we're going to go there. So you have to pray for me. Because uh, the, this, is, uh, woo, this is agonizing stuff. And um, I want to I get it right. I don't want to contribute to your confusion. I want to bring light to the scripture that will open your eyes to the heart of a God who reveals himself first and foremost as love. I want you to see him. Paul begins with a testimony about his own heart. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. This is Romans 9, verse 1. Now verse 2 that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, 
according to the flesh who were Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God blessed forever. It is not as though the word of God has failed. <clears throat> Paul is bringing us back now to a question he has not adequately addressed in the previous eight chapters. Do you remember Paul's thesis statement from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, that is, in the gospel, a righteousness of God from God is revealed from faith to faith, that as it is written, the just shall live by faith. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And then he has expounded this gospel message in such a way that is largely being uh, received by Gentiles. As in town after town after town, Paul and company and other missionaries are being thrown out of the synagogues and expelled from Judaism and forced to go to the Gentiles and meet in separate uh, times of worship because the Jews are rejecting Christ right and left. And yet, the Jewish heritage of the gospel is the heritage of the gospel. Israel is a foundation. The Old Testament. You know, if I hold my Bible up for you and I kind of mark the passage where Malachi and, and Matthew kind of separate... It's right here. It says the New Testament. Three-fourths of my Bible is Old Testament. All bound up in the history of Israel. And the Old Testament is the foundation, the bedrock upon which the New Testament rests. We don't have two different Bibles. We have one seamless whole. And three-fourths of it deals with the nation of Israel by and large. Abraham appears in of the 11th chapter of Genesis. And all the rest of the book is about the story of the nation of Israel. And Paul says, the covenants have come to Israel. Look what he says about them. He says, verse 4, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons. Who did God call? He called Abraham, come out of Ur of the Chaldees. And from Abraham he called Isaac, and from Isaac he called Jacob. And from Jacob it was Joseph who inter intervened to save his people. And then it was Moses, and then it was Mount Sinai and the law. And, and God made covenants with them along the way. A covenant with Abraham, a covenant through Moses, a covenant with David. And all of those moments of, of history in the life of Israel, God made a covenant. And it was out of that backdrop, calling them out, adopting them as his own, making them his people. Paul says, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and all the promises came to the Jews, to Israel. They were the recipients it wasn't that God was neglecting the rest of the world. It wasn't that God was ignoring them. 
or that God had no interest. He did. For example, you remember the, the story of Jonah and his message. And what did God say to Jonah? Go to Nineveh. Nineveh was a Gentile city, ungodly, horrible in sin. The reason we have the whole message of Jonah, for one thing, is because Jonah headed the opposite direction. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. The reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh is he knew that God was kind and merciful and full of loving kindness, and that if he went and preached uh, the repentance and, and preached the judgment of God, God might have mercy on Nineveh. They might repent. He hated these people. They were dirty, filthy Gentiles that had given them all kinds of grief. He wanted them to die and go to hell. Great evangelist, you know. <laughs> and God calls Jonah out and says, No, you go tell them about my judgment that's coming and, and tell them that I want them to repent. And Jonah says, If I do that, they might. God says, That's the point. And so Jonah goes. And they repent. Now, he didn't go willingly. He got vomited up by a big fish after trying to go the other way, but he ended up there. And God had mercy on the Gentile Ninevites. It wasn't that the Jews were the only people, but they were the people. Where did Jonah come from? The Jews. They were the people that had the message of God. They had the revelation of God. They had the law of God. They, they had all the history. And then Paul says, and from whom are the fathers. They're our heritage. They're our ancestors in the faith. We have the fathers from them. <clears throat> and so he says, through whom is the Christ, according to the flesh. Friends, if it weren't for the Jews, there would not be a Jesus. Yeshua the Savior, the Redeemer. And, and He is the fulfillment of all that that three-fourths of your Bible shadows and forecast. The symbolism and the imagery all pointing to the One who would come, grounding us and teaching us that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul says, Has God broken his covenant has God broken his covenant with Israel that after all the promises and all the commitment and all the blessings he would turn away and go to the Gentiles and forget all about the Jews Before we go into that, I want to just back up to verses 1 and 2, and just for a moment I want to ask you a question. Because I'll tell you, this is one of the most troubling passages of Scripture to me. Not because it gets into all the doctrines of election and foreknowledge and predestination and all of that kind of stuff. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man. You know what troubles me the most about this passage? Paul says, God is my witness. I'm telling you the truth, and I'm not lying. The Holy Spirit bears witness in my spirit that if it were possible, I would be willing to die and be cut off from Christ 
The Greek word is anathema. It means to be cursed to hell. I would be willing to be cut off from Christ and go to hell myself if it would mean that the Jews could be saved. That, to me, is the most troubling verse in all of these three chapters. Not because it's so profound in its theological content. It, it actually postulates something that is not even possible. Paul has just finished telling us no one can separate us from the love of God, and he's one of those. That's why he says, if, if possible, I could wish. But he says, I would give up my own salvation if my kinsmen, the Jews, could be saved. It troubles me on a level of how much do I love the lost. It goes right to my heart. It passes all the stuff in my head. And it hits me in the core of my being. How much do I love lost people? Paul says, I'm willing to die and go to hell if that would make the Jews come to Christ and God is my witness. You know, think about who he's talking about. You know, um, we never hear anything about Paul's family in the New Testament as far as we can tell. Some scholars have said he may be referencing a brother or something here, a sister here or there, but... But we don't know definitively anything about his family. But you know he had a family. He didn't just appear out of the desert. You know, he had a mother. He had a father. He probably had brothers and sisters. It was culturally pretty much expected that a Pharisee or an elder in the synagogue be married. And if he wasn't actually married, he was very likely betrothed which means engaged to someone. We hear nothing about any of them. When Paul says, I want the Jews to be saved, I wonder if he's talking about some of his own families. This is his mom, his dad, his sisters, his brothers, possibly a wife in his future that he's known and seen. and You know, how did they treat him after he came to Christ? And you know, in our system of education, they didn't have the same system, but I want you to know the level Paul was at. In our educational system, you know, many people get a bachelor's degree, and if they do well at that level and have a particular interest and opportunity, they may go on and earn a master's degree. And then if they've done well there and still have interest and want to pursue further, they may go for a Ph.D. or some kind of doctoral program. And by the time they're all done with that, they've spent anywhere from seven usually to ten years in school. You know, and by the time you get to that doctoral level, you're starting to, to, to get to know the people who have the same interest as you. You kind of know who the players are in your field. You begin to interact with them. There are people that have been your buddies all the way through. Paul was in the school of Gamaliel being groomed to be the next great rabbi of Israel and he was probably 40 years old or somewhere in that neighborhood when he was converted so all of his adult life to that point he had developed friendships and colleagues and, and relationships with people that had been his his uh, co-workers fellow students mentors teachers Gamaliel 
I mean, you don't get to be... I, I used to take... I was the only third-year Greek student the year that I took the third year of Greek. And so... And my professor was like 81 years old. And Earl Smith, Dr. Smith and I would have Greek class together, frequently at his kitchen table. Because it was a couple-hour class, and he didn't always want to come down to the campus. He was 81, after all. And, and I would go, and his wife would make us tea, and we would sit there and, and study Greek together. And he would teach me. And I guarantee you, he was more than just a professor. He was a mentor. He was a friend. I learned to love him and to, to cherish those times with him, one-on-one. -on -one with a man who had memorized the New Testament in three translations plus Greek, who had been teaching Bible for 60 years, I sat with him, and he taught me, and I loved him. These are Paul's kinsmen. And he says, I love them. And I would die and go to hell myself if they could come to know Jesus as I know him. I would give my life and my salvation for them. God is my witness. Do you know anybody you love that much? Do you know anybody you have that passion for? Boy, if you don't take anything else with you home today, take that home and meditate on it. And you know, I'm not sure I, I could go there. I'm grateful that Paul said, if possible, because I know it's not possible. Whew, I'm off the hook. You know, God's not going to let me die and go to hell for anybody. Thank you, Lord. I don't have to face that question, because I don't know what I would do. But it does make me question my love for the lost, because Paul said he had passionate love for the lost. The other thing I want to point out to you is at the end of this first paragraph in verse 5 he says whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever amen you know here is one of the grandest statements in scripture about both the humanity and the deity of Christ because Paul in talking about the lineage of Israel and the nation of the Jews he said Jesus is the Messiah from the Jews and then he says according to the flesh he wants us to know that Jesus is fully human, that he came from the line of Abraham. But he can't leave it there, because he's not just a Jewish Messiah. He is also over all. That is his position, his power. The Lord Jesus Christ is over all. And we need a comma in our English translations after the word God. And I'll tell you why. Because all the Greek scholars agree what this passage means, but we don't translate it this way. Have you ever been to a Seder dinner and you've had you know, a Jewish person lead you through that and explain some of the prayers? You come to into the prayers and it says, Blessed be he. You know, blessed be he. Partly because they don't want to defile the name of God by saying it out loud. And so they've the Jewish people have created a formula for referring to God. You know, the, his, his blessed name, blessed be he. 
And that's literally the way the Greek should be interpreted here. God, blessed be he. Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying about Jesus, who is overall God. Blessed be he forever. There's no question that Paul was speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of his deity as well as his humanity. And yet he reminds us that our Savior came through the Jews. Through the Jews. Douglas Moo, in his latest commentary on the book of Romans, Douglas Moo is an evangelical professor of New Testament and New Testament theology. And according to many reviewers, he has written the currently definitive commentary on the book of Romans. It's about this thick, and it's supposed to be the greatest treatment of that book to date by an evangelical scholar. As he comes to introduce his commentary on verse in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Douglas Moo says this, Many scholars of late and he's speaking within the last 30 to 50 years, many scholars of late are coming to interpret these chapters as being a statement of God's sovereignty in the course of nations and political history, rather than in the matter of personal and individual salvation and eternal life. In other words, the statements about God having mercy on whom he'll have mercy and wrath upon whom he has wrath, the statements about God's election and predestination and choice of people, many late scholars are applying these chapters to the nation of Israel rather than individual salvation. Douglas Moo is not very happy about that. But I want to say to you this morning, before we move into these chapters, that there are some bases we need to touch as preparation. And one of the things that we must always bear in mind is that Paul, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, above all else, is answering the question, what about the nation of Israel? And all that he says in these chapters applies to the nation of Israel. And even though there are insights into the character of God and references to personal choices, these chapters are not primarily about your salvation or mine. They are predominantly about the nation of Israel and God's plan for the Jews in his economy of human history. We have to cast these chapters into that framework. The other thing that we need to do before we dive into them is we need to make some statements about the character of God. I found out in the first service, I have five of them here I wanted to explore, and I only did one of them. So this is a two-part sermon. Next week's study guide will include the whole thing. And so you'll get it kind of in retrospect. But the first thing that I want to say about God and his character as we move into these chapters is God is inscrutable. You know what I mean by inscrutable? He cannot be scrutinized. 
by human beings. He is inscrutable. The Bible tells us that you and I and our finite minds cannot grasp the infinite majesty, wisdom, and glory of Almighty God. In fact, he tells us, if you want to write these verses down, you can look them up later, or they'll be on your study guide next week. He tells us in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. For my ways are as high above yours as the heavens are above the earth. Herb sent an email around. I was the beneficiary of one of those uh, email distributions of views from the Hubble telescope, and it was just this gorgeous, majestic uh, view from outer space, you know, of, of outer space and, and the earth. And when you think about the earth and the heavens, oh man, the heavens are, are, are beyond our wildest imagination in vastness. And the earth is a little speck rotating around a sun, which is a little speck in a galaxy that's kind of a little blip of dust in a universe that is immense. And God says, my thoughts are as high above your thoughts as the heavens are above the earth. I don't know what kind of perspective that gives you, but it's kind of overwhelming to me. God is huge. My ways are not your ways, he says. And yet Deuteronomy 32, 4 says God's ways are just. Whatever we may or may not understand about God, what we do understand is that he always acts justly. That he is in total harmony with his righteousness and his character. And if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 11, just over a page in my Bible, Romans chapter 11, verse 33 Paul comes to the end of his own statements in these chapters. And he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. In other words, Paul comes to the end of his own writing and says, This is amazing. God is stupendous. Makes me think of a word, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. You know, God is just out there. God is just unbelievable. God is unfathomable. You can't get him in your head. You never will. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Paul is amazed as he bows before this incredible God. So before we try to get into our little minds all the vast implications of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and his choices and his election, we need to come to reckoning with the fact that we will never fully reduce God to our little capacity for understanding. How many of you have had a course in philosophy? Can I see your hand? You've had a course in philosophy. 
Do you remember the subject of epistemology? When you studied the, the basis of knowledge, how can you know that you know? That you know. That you know. That you know. That you know. How do you know that I'm just not imagining all of you this morning? <laughs> How do you know you're not imagining me? Oh, there's a nightmare. How do you know that you're really here? For sure. I, I went home every day with a headache from philosophy in that section of the course. How do I know that I know that I know that I know that? I don't know. I, it, 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 ah. and, and some people come out and they're agnostic. You know what an agnostic is? It's agnosis. I cannot know. I, I don't know. I failed the test. I don't know. I have no knowledge. I don't know anything I can know for sure. I, an, an agnostic is basically confessing stupidity. But they go beyond that. They say you, can't, you can never be anything but stupid, because uh, you'll never know for sure how you know. It, it goes on and on. But there are theological agnostics. Here's what they say. God is so big, he's so vast, he's so unfathomable that we can never understand him. But you know, that does not speak to us of our limitations. That limits God. That makes God the one limited. We're saying he's so up there, so out there, so over there that he can't bridge the gap. Oh, and I want to tell you something this morning. God can bridge the gap. He's smart enough to talk to us stupid ones. He knows how to put it where I can get it. I'm so glad for that. And that's what the Bible's all about. That's what Revelation is all about. God says, I'm going to step into your life and tell you stuff on levels that you can comprehend. Because you'll never get it from my viewpoint, but I can put it down where you can understand it. And Revelation is all about that. It's all about God coming to me and putting things in ways that I can comprehend. We speak in doctrinal terms of God being transcendent. That means he's, yeah, way up there. And then we speak of him being condescendent. You know, when we talk about that among people, we say, oh, he has a condescending attitude, meaning he's treating me like a lowly servant, and he thinks he's so powerful, you know. But when we speak of God, we're saying God is condescending to my level to put things in, in terms that I can understand. And so here's where, here's where theologians climb up in their ivory towers and they get all confused because they try to go further than God lets us go. I mentioned this in Romans 8.29 when we were there a few weeks ago. Who are, for whom he foreknew, he predestined. Now, theologians talk about all kinds of interesting things. They talk about the timelessness of God. They talk about uh, God in his, in his transcendence epistemologically and his condescendence ontologically. Now, I, I'm going to explain that. I really am. 
<clears throat> he's out there, and his knowledge, he knows the end from the beginning. That's his epistemology. He knows everything. And he knows it all at once. If we could imagine human history as this timeline down here, God is up here, and he, he's got it all together at once. He knows the whole thing. He's already at the end at the marriage feast. He's already in the New Jerusalem. He's already a billion years into the heavenly future. While he's before creation, while he's before the angels, even when there's only the triune God and there is no universe, he is all of that simultaneously in one moment of time in his awareness because God knows everything and cannot learn anything because there's nothing he will never need to discover. I don't get that. But God tells me he has come down to me. That was the epistemology part. Here's the ontology part. God has come down to me in my experience and he lives with me every day of my life. And even though I don't know what's around the next corner, he does and he's with me. And he's loving me and he's caring for me and he's with me in this moment. Because you see, God is eternal both in the instant and in the forever. But we are finite and we are linear. We can't, we can't go to that high place and, and get it all simultaneously. We live here. And when we live here in this linear plane, that means on a line, one thing after another. We call it cause and effect. One thing after another. We have to live our life day by day. I've never been able to take a shower, brush my teeth, tie my shoes, comb my hair, get my clothes on, drive to church all at once. I have to do those things in sequence. Sometimes I have to do them in rather slow sequence. I live my life in sequence. And when God wants to explain to me his vast comprehension in ways that make sense to me, he condescends to my level. And he gets down where my brain can get around it. And he says, for me, foreknowledge, election, sovereignty, predestination, and the grand summation of the ends of the earth all take place instantly. But for you, to understand me and my heart, you need to know that my election is based on foreknowledge. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. This is condescension. This is God getting down on my level. This is God putting it where I can get a hold of it. If you need sequence, I'll give you sequence. Let me explain to you so your mind will get it. I look through human history 
And as my Holy Spirit went out to the ends of the earth to call lovingly people to come back home to me. And when he came to you, I saw your heart. I saw, I saw the awakening as the Holy Spirit brought understanding and, and illumination. I saw you respond to me. I saw you turn your heart toward me as I reached to you. And I wrote your name in the book of life from the foundation of the earth. And now I'm in the process of claiming for my own all those whom I have seen. And I sent my son to die for you. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 18 is a very curious passage. Or 13, 8. In the New American Standard Version, it says, Our names were written in the book of life from the foundation of the earth for the lamb that was slain. But the New International Version says, Our names were written in the lamb's book of life for the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. The reason is because the Greek is hard to understand there, and it could go either way. But however you look at it, Jesus died in the heart of God, and my name was written in the heart of God before Adam was made. But that does not change the fact that as human history unfolds on the timeline, God is actively at work in the lives and affairs of men and women. And he has one passion. He's seeking out those who will turn to him. And he knows their name. And he's looking for you. And he's coming after you. And those of you whom he has found... He has embraced you and said, Oh, I'm so glad you're back home with my heart. We need to understand that there are things about the sovereignty of God we will never understand. We need to know that there are limitations to the free will of man. But we need to know also that God is a God of love, and he has made us to be love in him, in his image, and he plans to restore that. And that when he needs to explain election to us, he gets down on our level and puts it in sequence. And he says, my knowledge comes before my choice. Because as I sought you, I saw you. And I have called you. We're going to see that more fully as we go through these passages and I have four other points that we'll get to next week about the character of God before we begin to take apart the verses one by one. But we need to start here and understand that while the ways of God are past finding out, he has not left us ignorant. We don't have to be agnostic because he has come to our level to explain what we need to know in terms we can understand so that we can relate to him rightly with confidence. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. And I pray this morning that as we begin to go into this journey, that you would give us even greater confidence and trust in your all-powerful love. And Father, I want to pray that you'll guard me from error, 
I can't expect to be infallible. But I do want to ask that you protect me from error and that we go through this together, comparing Scripture with Scripture, seeking you for the answers that we might know you more thoroughly because to know you is to love you. And oh God, we love you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.